Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage. Later in the programme, we hear about a visit to Hong Kong in the 1850s, made by a London celebrity and friend of Charles Dickens, the British comedian Albert Smith, who apparently entertained Hong Kongers with his drollery. But first, I head to the Hong Kong Maritime Museum at Pier 8 in Central to talk to Dr Libby Chan, Assistant Director for Curatorial and Collections, about a small permanent exhibition at the museum called Humans and the Ocean. We got a new display that's about the humans and the ocean, and it covers exhibits from the Neolithic period to modern times. So 6,000 years. Yeah. So what we try to achieve in this little showcase, that will be introducing three main uh, themes of our museum. That is basically is uh, three decks of our museum. The first one is the maritime heritage. The others is about maritime culture and Hong Kong stories. And the third is about maritime technology. So we started with a very abstract and beautiful ceramics that was produced in Neolithic period with the decoration of shells that was made in Maja Yao in Yellow River. The central plain. Where is the Yellow River? The Yellow River is the northern part of China and is today where Shanxi province, around Shanxi province, are located. So that pot, that decorated pot I'm looking at, <laughs> is 6,000 years old. Yeah. That's yeah. incredible. Yeah. So it's a very early pieces. Uh, and um, you can see the abstract patterns and the design is, when you look at it, it feels so modern. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, mm -hmm. definitely. I mean, the, the fact is that you don't expect, with 6,000 years, you'd expect something to be practical, rudimentary, mm -hmm. not decorative. Yeah, so that kind of geometric form, but you also still can recognize the shells that yes. they could find in the sea and use it to decorate because shell was used as a currency. So that becomes very important to them. Shell money was once commonly used in many parts of the world. Shell money usually consisted of whole or partial seashells, often worked into beads or otherwise shaped. The use of shells in trade began as a direct commodity exchange, the shells having value as body ornamentation. In China, cowrie shells were so important that many characters relating to money or trade contain the character for the cowrie. Starting over 3,000 years ago, cowrie shells or copies of the shells were used as Chinese currency. So you could find other geometric forms in, in other ceramics, but we select this beautiful piece related to the sea. So that's the first piece that's talking about the early civilization. And then we also have materials in Neolithic period and Bronze Age found in Tumun that you can see the fish hat bones. <laughs> That's very interesting. And also that you could find the hook, the bronze hook that's made of bronze and that's also found in Bronze Age. So you could see during the Neolithic and Bronze Age period, Hong Kong has people, they do fishing, they live here. So that's what we want to show to the visitors. 
And then we would jump to Song Dynasty. <laughs> we got more Han Dynasty material in our permanent display. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, just to explain that, this is just a quick look in various other parts of the museum. You can find much more. And as you say, you jumped to the Song Dynasty. Yeah. So we jumped to Song Dynasty and showing ship model. The ship model, uh, you could see the structure of the uh, Song Dynasty ship models. There's lots of divisions. And that shows the wisdom of the shipbuilding technology because let's say when the vessel hit a big rock and then water would come in but with the design of divisions you can see lots of parts in the ship so the water would come in only part of it so the vessels would get less chance to sink there's a very advanced technology around one millennium so that also proves why there's uh, the maritime culture is so advanced in China. And you still can find lots of important shipwrecks between China and Japan or Korea during this period, like the Nanghai number one and other shipwrecks in Korea as well as Xin'an shipwreck. And of course, the earlier in the Tang Dynasty, there's a very famous shipwreck called Bulletin, Bulletin shipwreck um, found in Southeast Asian waters. Now it's a bit in Singapore or people would name it in Tan Shipwreck because it's so unique and the only one. And they've managed to bring them back up? Yeah, so they managed to bring them back up and then eventually uh, Singapore government, the National Heritage Board of the government, together with the funding from Sentosa, Sentosa purchased it and donated to the Singapore government. Now, um, it's a pitch in Asian Civilizations Museum where I worked before. Oh, yeah. Okay. Right, right. yeah, so that is a very important shipwreck. Nearly 1,100 years ago, an Arab ship bearing a precious cargo of ceramics, gold and silver set sail from the port of then Canton. Just off the shores of Sumatra, near the island of Belitung, the ship sank and remained there untouched until it was discovered by chance in 1998. It lay beneath the Gaspar Strait, one of the northern entrances to the Java Sea. The Arab vessel, which had the largest collection of Tang Dynasty artefacts ever seen, was discovered in 1998 by fishermen searching for sea cucumbers. It contained a remarkable cargo of more than 60,000 ceramics produced in China during the Tang Dynasty. So between the years 618 AD and 907 AD. It also contained luxurious objects of gold and silver. Bound for Iran and Iraq, the ship provides early proof of the strong commercial links between China, Southeast Asia and the Middle East. The Tang shipwreck is now kept at the Asian Civilizations Museum in Singapore. The sheer scale of the cargo of the Belitung shows that in the 9th century, Chinese ceramics were very popular overseas and that Chinese potters mass-produced thousands of nearly identical ceramics for foreign markets. Ceramics found in the wreck range from humble Changsha wares to those that reflect elite taste, such as Celadon ware from Yu kilns and white ware from sing kilns that were valued for their beauty and elegance. And the Song Dynasty shipwrecks I mentioned, including 
the Nanhai number one shipwrecks are found in Guangdong, and Xin'an shipwreck found in Korea. They are both Song Dynasty shipwrecks. They are all national treasures. Have we got any shipwrecks underwater here? We have lots of materials related to shipwrecks, like there's a very, very small shipwrecks from the Ming Dynasty found in Manyi Reservoir, and also there's other materials, Ming Dynasty shipwrecks in Southeast Asia that we got some ceramics exhibited in the permanent gallery in Sea Deck. Yeah. Right, right, mm-hmm. so you can get bits from but I presume there must be probably I don't know how well they survive with wood mm. but presumably around Hong Kong mm-hmm. in the same way as here at the museum you've also got a Song Dynasty anchor that mm. there's probably still material that we haven't discovered yet here in Hong Kong waters. Mm -hmm. Possibly. We believe that there would be much more materials related to Song Dynasty that are waiting for us to discover. Uh, Yeah, and in Kaidak area, uh, the excavation is ongoing, there's land excavation, and if we are able to do more underwater excavation or exploration, then probably more and more materials in the Song, Yuan, Ming and Qing dynasty could be discovered. Of course, the 20th century, there's still lots of shipwrecks under the water in the Victoria Harbour or in Hong Kong waters. There's yes. a waiting for us to, yes. to excavate them. <laughs> yes, I was going to say during, obviously, periods like the Japanese military occupation, mm-hmm. there's going to be more either scuppered ahead, you know, mm-hmm. or, or mm-hmm. actually sunk mm-hmm. during the war here. But back to humans and the oceans, you mm-hmm. show 6,000 years here, a number of of items as a curator, mm-hmm. it must be really, really difficult to choose which ones are going to go in, surely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> Tell the story. That's a very, very good question. <laughs> yeah. So that's kind of a skills that like you will be need first to be very familiar with the collection, and then also the themes that what you want to achieve because here that it will be very close to the entrance or. That will be the last spot that the visitors will come in. So we want to give the visitors a feeling of an introduction or a summary. Yes. Yeah, yes. so they can, what they can take back home. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's a very condensed showcase. Uh, and we also want to show the port story of Hong Kong using materials, whether it's from excavation or from the materials related to Hong Kong or some old photos or paintings. We also want to show materials close to Hong Kong, like in Pearl Delta River, and also like then expand how Hong Kong related to the area in southern China. So after the materials you can find in Song Dynasty, we also got a Song Dynasty mirror with a decoration of a vessel and sea monster on top of it. <laughs> so it's a Song Dynasty mirror? Yeah, Song Dynasty mirror. Well, they had glass? They will not use glass because of the reflection on the mirror. So the noble people or the rich people, they will be able to own bronze mirror like this. And you can see the decorations of the vessel and the sea monster, that kind of maritime theme that will be very important to the people back to Song Dynasty because maritime trade is so important during the Song Dynasty and there's a large amount of tax and income for the country that's come from sea trade. Oh, interesting. Mm. Yes, yes. People who were based in Hong Kong, would they have had to send taxes? 
to the Song Dynasty government. During the Song Dynasty, we got a record about salt imperial salt, yeah. salt, yeah, salt, yeah, salt imperial officer. Yeah, is based here. So Hong Kong was very important area to produce salt and export them. So we got the officer based in Hong Kong. So they would just send bags of salt, salt or the the tests. Uh, both, I think, uh, because so we've got Song Dynasty. You've got money, uh, yeah, coins, yeah, yeah. Uh, coins. Uh, so that's why we got throughout the whole Song Dynasty, Northern Song Dynasty and Southern Song Dynasty, we can still find lots of coins in Hong Kong. So if I still went out with my metal detector, <laughs> <laughs> but is it, what were the coins made of? Yeah, the coins made of bronze. Basically, they were made of bronze, so it could show that's really for trade. We don't have. The silver and the gold currency found in Hong Kong yet, but the shipwrecks like the Nanghai Number One shipwrecks very close to Hong Kong, whereas it's in Yangjiang in Guangzhou, close to Guangzhou, and there's lots of silver and gold money that were found. Interesting.、Mm-hmm. Now, can you remind me for、mm-hmm. Song Dynasty, what's the time frame for、mm-hmm. that? The time frame is around ninth century to like twelfth century, so Northern Song to Southern Song. And within Hong Kong, you've got quite an established trading population at that point. Yeah, very possibly, according to the new excavation we found、um, so far. So, so there would have been an established population here who then also made salt or used coinage. In order to pay, so and in terms of the Chinese government,、yeah. I'm stretching a little bit beyond、mm-hmm. the, the remit of this exhibition here. But where would the Chinese government have been at that、mm-hmm. time? And when we would we here in as part of the Song Dynasty, would we have been paying into, say, Guangzhou, or what、mm-hmm. would it, what would have been the headquarters in those、yeah. days? So during the Song Dynasty, the headquarters of Hong Kong region that belongs to Shenzhen area,、oh, okay. yeah. So there is a headquarter there. But of course, depending on if it's Northern Song Dynasty, that would be more northern China. If Southern Song Dynasty, that would be the area close to Nanjing Province. But they need different divisions in different provinces. So at that time, Hong Kong is part of、uh, Shenzhen, and even in Panyu, Panyu is where the Guangzhou lo- located, close to Guangzhou area. So it's in Guangdong Province. Now, often the historical narrative here、mm-hmm. is that pre 1841, so pre Britain colonial government、mm-hmm. coming into Hong Kong.、Mm-hmm. That it's largely a bit of fishing trade.、Mm-hmm. As a historian, does that、mm-hmm. annoy you that, that pe- people do this rather、mm-hmm. basic history? I think that we need to acknowledge what's happening. That 1841, Hong Kong is opened up to become a, a free port, and this is a very important history. And at the same time, that as a like, historian, what I find that what we need to do more is discovering more and more what's happening before. 1841. Is it nobody's here, or indeed more and more historical materials that is found underwater or like unearthed from the land that showing that、mm, um, <laughs> give us a second thought. Okay, that's indeed that's much more things、uh, could be told. Is、um, could be like 1,000 years earlier or longer. That's so exciting! <laughs> I would imagine、yeah. when you're excavating, when you suddenly see this new coin、yeah. or you、yeah. know new artifact, it must be、mm-hmm. absolutely fascinating. I'm talking with Dr. Libby Chan, Assistant Director here 
at the Hong Kong Maritime Museum and responsible for curatorial and collection. We're here looking at Humans and the Ocean, which is quite a small exhibition area and it's sort of representative of what else you can also see at uh, the Hong Kong Maritime Museum. So we've been looking at Song Dynasty ship shape and we've also got um, the Neolithic 6,000-year-old pottery, decorated pottery there. Who is this old man in the chair? Mm -hmm. He looks a very handsome, noble <laughs> man, an old man, an old gentleman sitting there. He's indeed a very important figure in the modern Chinese history. He is Lin Zixu, the one that related to the burning of opium during the 19th century, and there's some linkage that that's why Hong Kong. This portrait, um, he's uh, crafted beautifully and sits uh, very comfortably on the chair with two attendants. His servant, one is a lady, one is a guy much smaller so usually the important people will be depicted in the Chinese art that will be depicted much bigger than is that ceramic or carved stone? It's a carved stone yeah. and interestingly it's indeed not just a simple aesthetic uh, statue it's indeed putting in a temple oh. so he was worshipped by by the religious people, because he's so important, he's like lost. So he's a, but he's, he's a Mandarin official, isn't yeah, he? Yeah, he's yeah. a Mandarin official, and he's the one to burn opium during the opium war. And because his big contribution, and people would imagine become a god, and then depict him like a god. And then at the back of this statue, there's a hold you could put the sutra inside, so that proofs it was uh, used in a temple. In a temple, yeah. Mm -hmm. So Lindsay Shu, yes, I mean, it's, you've got mid-19th century, you've got various foreign powers mm -hmm. trying to get a hold in a weakened Qing dynasty China, yeah. and of course you've got the Opium Wars in the middle of the 19th century when Britain is trying to force China to import more and more opium. You're mm -hmm. ending up with a lot of opium addicts in China. So mm -hmm. uh, not exactly the cleanest yeah. time of, of, of Britain's history, but uh, all, all, part all, history. all part of the yeah. history, all yes, history. And, and also the foundation mm -hmm. of Hong Kong. And he actually did sort of like a mass burning of this opium. Yes, mass burning, yes. and it's very symbolic. So that, that's why people would depict him as a god. That's a, also why people worship him. That's very interesting. And with this figure, we also have two beautiful mugs made in Canton. And when you look at the decoration on top of it, indeed one belongs to the third governor, Sir Bonham. After a period of service with the East India Company, Samuel George Bonham was appointed governor of Hong Kong in March 1848. During his tenure, Bonham cut government spending to balance the budget and also stimulated the real estate market in order to increase government income. His method of increasing government income eventually became the major source of income for the Hong Kong government a century later. Governor Bonham was known for his calm demeanour and gentle nature. It was due to these qualities that he gained the trust of the British government and the good relationship of many Hong Kong people. Bonham retired from the position of governor in Hong Kong in April 1854 and returned to England. So we also have his personal belongings shown here and the other one possibly belongs to one noble British family that have a decoration of their family crest on it. So we also show about the idea of China trade or called Canton trade and how uh, people would order 
materials, uh, ceramics or other goods in Canton, and then they would send it to Western countries. And tears showing too much that also capture part of the important history. Yes, mm-hmm. absolutely. Now, what's this? It looks like, I mean, from a distance, it looks mm-hmm. like some sort of, where well, you've got to wind it up. It's not a sewing machine. What's that? <laughs> yeah, this is indeed like a steam machine. That's oh, a model. Yeah. Oh, I see. So this is a model of something far bigger. Yeah, so it's a f- much far bigger that would be put in the steamship. So because of the usage of the steam, so that steamships can carry people much further and faster. When does steam really come in? Steam, that would be like after the Industrial Revolution. And when the steamships would be popular, that would be around the early or mid-19th century, mm. when the steamships were built and then uh, kind of uh, become a fashion. And we had an exhibition called American Traders in China uh, half years ago that also showing some beautiful vests that has embroidery of steamships. And people would put steamships on their fashions. So because it's so fashionable, it's so advanced at that time. So this kind of exhibit also could be found in our permanent gallery in SeaDeck. So this is actually a steam engine mechanism yes. that's, that's used mm-hmm. with the advent of steam, which of course made all the transport and trades mm-hmm. so much faster. Mm-hmm. And those companies that didn't switch fast enough yeah. went broke. Yeah. <laughs> so what's this final bronze item here? This is a bronze telegraph that will be used on the boat. So at the end of this small exhibition, Humans and the Ocean, which you can see in one, and it's a kind of teal background uh, showcase here with a number of really quite fascinating items. And next to the hydraulic model of a steam engine, which in fact shows how the paddle steamship was one of the first types of vessels that used steam-powered mechanical propulsion. Next to it, you've got this brass telegraph with wooden base, and it shows how the ship telegraph was a a freestanding communication device that was used to send signals from the bridge to the ship's engine room. So yeah, Mm. so that's uh, bringing it a little bit more further up to date, although albeit um, a few uh, decades ago. What would you use now? I suppose an email. (laughs) 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 Something more like, um, I believe something more electronic. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But like uh, for the technical side, then um, we got lots of like very nice captains and they as our, our advisors and that could uh, really and j- just like we got a very interesting simulator that like every weekend we were weekends we were open to the public and then you could go and then learn how to drive the ships with the captains. That's right, yeah. yes, it's the ship bridge simulator here. Yes. I've had to go on that. You have to have your sort of sea, yeah. sea legs on. Have you had a go? Yeah, so it's very, <laughs> very, like, very, very interesting. And be careful that like, when you stay there like more than five minutes, you feel a little bit dizzy yes. because you really feel like you are on the ships. My thanks to Libby Chan, Assistant Director for Curatorial and Collections at the Hong Kong Maritime Museum, talking there on the small permanent exhibition at the museum on Pier 8 called Humans and the Ocean. Albert Smith was a London comedian and a well-known celebrity who travelled to Hong Kong in 1858. The late writer, illustrator and artist Arthur Hacker wrote about Albert Smith for a magazine article in the mid-1990s. And this is what he had to say. Albert Smith was a humorous English writer and entertainer and a great friend of Charles Dickens. His specialty was one-man shows. 
These were amusing lectures about how the English behaved abroad and included comic songs and funny stories. His show, Mr. Albert Smith's Ascent of Mont Blanc, ran for seven seasons. In the summer of 1858, he decided to go to Hong Kong to gather material for a new show, Mont Blanc to China. When Smith arrived in the colony, having sailed past several Chinese pirates on the way, there were no hotels, so he was put up in the old Hong Kong club at the bottom of Wyndham Street, where the entertainment building stands today. The British civilian population at the time numbered fewer than 500, and the arrival of a London celebrity was a welcome event. Thomas Sutherland, who founded the Hong Kong and Shanghai Bank, took him for a drive. In a little Croydon basket carriage to the Leyumun Passage, Smith wrote: "Granite rocks coming early down to the sea, water rills falling, Chinese graves in fishing stations all the way, many people out in carriages, and some Yankees in iron four-wheeled trotting gigs. Also, a string of Mr. Jardine's horses led out for airing by grooms." That evening, he met Charles St. George Cleverly, the architect of Government House, who had miraculously escaped a massacre. Aboard the steamer Queen, Mr. Cleverly escapes with a thigh shot through and the bone badly comminuted, and swam for an incredible time until picked up by a launcher. Piracy was rife, and one of the highlights of Smith's tour was his visit to the notorious American pirate Eli Boggs, who was languishing in Victoria Jail. He was very good-looking, with long dark hair and a very remarkable eye, almost round, with a pupil like a black bead. Boggs was not feeling well, so Smith, who was also a doctor, obligingly felt his pulse. It registered over ninety. Smith was invited to a Chinese dinner by Kwok Ah Cheng, the comprador of the Peninsula and Oriental Steam Navigation Company, or P&O. It was a magnificent banquet. We had in succession shark fins, stew of goose, tendons of deer, bird's nest soup, turtle, ham, very good, fowls and quails, pigeons made up like faggots, fish sounds, small puddings of pork fat, a soup of rose leaves with a strong twang of garlic, and many unknown things. There were sixteen courses. We ate as much as we could. Smith explained. He seems to have enjoyed Chinese cuisine. This is surprising because he was generally rather scathing about foreign cooking. He was plied with wine, and it was then suggested that he perform, and he obliged with a few conjuring tricks. The next day, he wrote, "Very seedy with the fun of the night before, and did not get up until ten." Aided by Rafael Rosario, a court interpreter, Smith scoured Hong Kong for props for his show. He bought fans, lanterns, all kinds of curios, and Mandarin jackets. The governor, Sir John Bowring, presented him. With a curious scroll and a packet of the convolvulus seeds, the bishop gave him the litany printed in Chinese, and the admiral contributed a map of Canton. Doctor Kenny gave him a pair of tiny golden lily shoes and a piece of the infamous poisoned bread, a grim relic from the diabolical attempt to murder the entire European population of Hong Kong the previous year. Before he left Hong Kong, Smith put on a show for charity. And raised two hundred pounds, a colossal sum at the time for such a small community. Before he left Hong Kong, Smith put on a show for charity, and raised two hundred pounds, a colossal sum at the time for such a small community. His success was unprecedentedly brilliant in the annals of China. The Hong Kong Daily Press reported. 
It went on to describe how he tickled the Chinese amazingly with his drollery. They must have liked him because they organised a tremendous farewell parade with bands and exploding firecrackers. The sum total of the British contribution to these splendid festivities was three hearty cheers. My thanks to my colleague Tom McAlinden being the voice of travelling British comedian Albert Smith. Next week, I'll be heading to What is Fine Art in Central to hear about the Mapping of Asia exhibition. Robert Neal, the past president of the Royal Asiatic Society Hong Kong, has collected more than 50 maps and charts that show Macau and the surrounding area. I started collecting uh, maps of Macau over 35 years ago, and it became a passion for maps of Macau or maps featuring Macau. There's one here, for instance, which is a chart of the whole Pearl River uh, Delta, Pearl River Estuary in 1844. It features Macau. It's this tiny little bit here, but it features Macau and puts Macau into context because it's at the left-hand side of the Pearl River entrance, Hong Kong and Lantau on the right-hand side, and all the way up there you get Canton at the top. So that's how it developed, and I ended up with about 50 maps of Macau or maps featuring Macau. This is 1655. 1655, and what's the name of it? Well, the name's sometimes odd because they've got some sort of anglicised version of writing the Chinese name. So this is Tong, but then it goes into Latin, Imperii Sinarum Provincia Duodecima. So it's the 12th province of the, of the Chinese Empire. Don't ask me what the first 11 were, but they're probably these up here. <laughs> There'll be a test later. The Blau did uh, impressions of all, uh, I don't know if it was 18 provinces then, it's 18 now, but all provinces then existing in China. And this is the Guangdong one. Robert Neal there. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage.